one of the things that's important to us here at Widener is belonging in a sense of comfort and having a place. And I think that when you are from marginalized communities, when you walk into the law school and you see a course called Hip Hop Law and Social Justice, that makes you feel certain populations feel good about being in that environment because they can see a piece of themselves and their culture in the law school. Right. And I think right. it facilitates a wonderful pathway for learning. Welcome to Foreign Widener, a podcast that explores the far-reaching impact and influence of Widener University and its alumni. At Foreign Widener, you'll hear engaging conversations with fascinating alumni, educators, researchers, and industry professionals about the many ways the Widener community strives to shape tomorrow's leaders. Thanks for listening and enjoy the episode. Welcome to Far and Widener. I'm your host, Greg Potter, and today my guest is Todd Clark. He's Dean of the Widener University Delaware Law School. He joined law school in July of 2023 after serving as Senior Associate Dean of Academic Affairs and Professor of Law at St. Thomas University College of Law in Florida. Todd holds his undergraduate degree in political science from Wittenberg University and his MBA from West Virginia University College of Business and Economics. He has his JD from the University of Pittsburgh School of Law, where he was also president of the Black Law Students Association. And Todd has also taught at North Carolina Central University School of Law. He was a tenured professor there, taught contracts, corporate justice, employment discrimination, and hip-hop law and justice. And he's also the author of Corporate Justice, as well as numerous law articles and other scholarly publications on social justice corporate discretion, sexual harassment topics, and many others. It's a pleasure to have Todd here today. Todd, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Greg. Yeah, it's good to see you. One area of expertise that I mentioned that I'm really excited to explore with you today is your focus on hip-hop, its history, its impact on law, its impact on society, and hip-hop has just reached a milestone in that it's 50 years old as a uh, genre and a force of nature in our society yes. and, and impact. And you certainly have a lot of extensive experience in hip hop's social impact and context with legal battles. But I want to go back before we get there and kind of talk about Young Todd and the mm. impact of hip hop on your life. How did that impact your teaching? I have been a strong listener of hip hop music and an avid practitioner of its culture and an appreciating all of the various capacities in which hip-hop music and its culture can impact a person's life. So let's say the way that it impacted me at a young level, it really gave me a sense of appreciation for who I was as a person. So there were various artists that I came to appreciate as a young person that I can find my story and their lyrics. So one of my favorite artists of all time is Andre 3000 from mm -hmm. Member of Outcast. And so if you think about his music, his music is really eclectic. Andre 3000, he grew up in some rough areas, but if you look at his personality, sort of the way that he's personified in his music and in his dress and in his approach to the world is a little bit different. And I really appreciated the fact that he was excellent and comfortable in his own skin, right, right? right? So, you know, I grew up in some really, really rough areas, but my experience was a little bit different because while I grew up in a rough area, I grew up in a house that was one block away from the projects. I had a mother that worked really hard and I had a father that still was a presence in my life. I knew that if I did something stupid, my father would punch me in my head and I was scared <laughs> of my father. Right. So that was a good experience for me. So while I ran with some people 
that, you know, had some very difficult challenges and maybe engaged in some behaviors that I'm sure that now they look back and say maybe that there was a different way. The circumstances presented that for them and dictated, you know, how they were going to interact in their lives. But I was always in a position where I'm like, I can't go that route because I have a responsibility to my mother, have a responsibility to my father. And at the same time, I'm in high school and I'm in elementary school and middle school and I'm in many of the gifted and talented programs. And so, you know, I had this really unique mix of friends, right? So I had these friends that grew up in the urban area that had some difficulties, Mm -hmm. but I also had some friends that were in the gifted and talented, you know, side. And so sometimes if you're on the gifted and talented academic side, you're a nerd. And if you are on the other side, let's say you're a deviant. And so I occupied this middle space and I appreciated Andre 3000 music because he was able to successfully navigate that space and his focus was on who he wanted to be as a person right like it was more important for him to be who he was as opposed to fitting himself into either of those spaces and I liked it I transitioned in and out of those things nicely and it helped me develop some wonderful skills in terms of you could put me in any room in the country and I'm going to get along with the people because it's all about building those relationships and being comfortable with who you are yeah one thing you and I have in common that we discovered when we first met each other was a passion for music, which I have also. And I just recently listened to a podcast about Andre 3000 and Outcast. And interesting that you mentioned some of his perspective that relates to your upbringing as well. And Andre 3000 really also pushed a lot of boundaries because of that, because of the what you describe about how you were kind of living between two worlds that gave you and maybe Andre 3000 also and similar in his experience kind of a viewpoint from a different perspective and he wasn't afraid to kind of push into that realm and do something different yeah I have so much appreciation and respect for the confidence that he had to do that and he didn't really care what people thought about him for pushing those boundaries right and now people look back and appreciate the work that he did sort of his his freedom and his individualism his intellectual capacity and I also just love his music because I can appreciate as a lawyer at their core lawyers are storytellers, right? right? right. And Andre 3000, if you listen to his music, sometimes I'm even forgetting I'm listening to a song. He's like a storyteller and I can just sit there and listen to the narrative and he could take you back to an experience that you had as a young person growing up in a particular area. And you feel like you have taken a time machine back in time to live that experience through his music. Right. I, I was interested in digging a little bit deeper with you there about the history and impact of hip hop, we covered how it impacted you as a person and your personal perspective on things. But how did you get into sort of exploring more of that history and impact as it relates to law? You mentioned that you're a storyteller. Mm-hmm. There's certainly a connection there, but I'm just curious about how your passion for music sort of worked its way into your expertise and your career. You know, I think hip hop is a function of black culture. And as an African-American man who is an African-American male professor and now a law dean, you know, given the fact that it influenced who I am as a person, it also influences the way that I see the world and the things that are important to me, the things that I'm aware of because of the messages that I hear in the music. And I think that in terms of, you know, connecting with my students and letting them understand who I am, I bring those experiences into the classroom. Sometimes it can be as something as simple as a, a hypothetical about a contract case and I'm utilizing artists that you hear about in the hip hop community. The other time it's a critical perspective that the hip hop community has against a way or of thinking about the world around us and how the law impacts that. Hip hop and its impact on on law generally, if you really think about 
just take me for example at this point i'm now the dean of a law school mm -hmm. right so mm -hmm. you have these people that grew up in the hip-hop generation as part of a hip-hop culture who are now deans of law school who are now judges who are now attorneys who are now politicians and that's really exciting right so the, many of those lessons that you listen to from let's say a tupac or notorious big or thinking about nwa some of these seminal artists in the genre that had an impact in changing the world around us. Now those artists that gave those messages, you have people that listen to those messages. Now those people, that generation is now in a position where they can make a difference in the world. So right. it definitely has impacted me from that capacity. And from that, the thing that has been really important to me is the, the reason that I make such an effort to incorporate it into the way that I teach my courses and the way that I think about the law is one of the things that's important to us here at Widener is belonging in a sense of comfort and having a place. And I think that when you are from marginalized communities, when you walk into the law school and you see a course called Hip Hop Law and Social Justice, that makes you feel, certain populations feel good about being in that environment because they can see a piece of themselves and their culture in the law school. Right. And I think it right. facilitates a wonderful pathway for learning. So you just walked right into my next question for you. And I'm really intrigued by hip hop law and social justice. Can you tell us a little bit about what students learn there and what impact you think it's having on them or what impact it's had on your previous students who've been a part of your course? So one of the ways that I set this course up is I'll look at different aspects of the law. So like, let's say corporate law, property law, I'll look at the criminal justice system, also employment related law. And so I take hip hop and I look at each of these sort of core areas from the hip hop lens. And we have some discussion about how the music or how the law is impacted by either the law impacted by the music or the music impacted by the law. We have some really rich discussion. So for example, there's a, in my property section, we spend some time talking about property rights in America. And out of that discussion about property rights in America, we talk about do our understandings of property rights in America, does that align with the way that we think about property from the hip hop community, right? So there's this interesting conflict. So if you think about DJing, like hip hop at its infancy, right? In the early seventies, I mean, it was about these block parties where people would come together and have these wonderful parties. And you got a DJ that is playing a turntable and he has two different albums, the same record playing and he's mixing in between. And that's how hip hop evolved, right? But there's another story about that with respect to the block party, right? When the block party occurred, you were still taking power from a building and you weren't paying for it. You were commandeering right, right. the space, right? So, you know, in some regards, there's a frustration from the hip hop community to the extent that there are these property rights that protect some, but these property rights don't protect all, right? Certain marginalized populations don't have the same protection of property rights. So from that, I think that in the hip hop community, you have seen some disregard for certain property rights because the rights of the people of the community that make up the hip hop community, their rights were not respected, right? Or, or sometimes it gets normalized through these events, right? Exactly right, right? Yeah. So I, th I think you're absolutely right. So that's a discussion that we would facilitate in the context of the yeah, class. That's interesting. What impact has it had on you personally, being able to teach law and your methodology of kind of looking at it through the lens of something that you're passionate about, like hip hop? It's exciting for me 
it's invigorating. It's wonderful to walk into a classroom where I have an opportunity to share with people something that is important to me. And I think that as professors, that's what we all do, right? And I think that having an ability to do that with hip hop music is very special to me because it's related to the culture from which I originated. And it sounds like you've seen some of that also reflected through your students and some of the responses you've received from students who've been in your courses. Oh, absolutely. And I think one of the things that's been really cool is when I teach that hip hop law and social justice course, I get students from all types of backgrounds. And one of the things that I like to do in the class that I'm I'm really proud of is there's a song called I Used to Love Her by Common Sense. And it's a wonderful song. And in this particular song, Common Sense writes about the evolution of hip hop, right? So he starts talking about how it grew up in New York and it was really innocent. And then it turned gangster. And then it went from sort of this gangster culture to commercialization. Now, throughout the context of the song, he never talks about hip hop. The song is called I Used to Love Her. So the visual narrative of the video when he's uh, rapping this song Mm -hmm. is about a woman. So the whole time you think he's talking about a woman that has evolved, but it's a metaphor for the evolution of hip hop, Right. right? And one of the things I like to do in the classroom is I say, you know, hip hop culture is personified by this idea of the remix. So I asked my students, if this song were remixed today, what would the next verse be? And some of the most compelling stories and narratives in future verses about what that next verse might be, it really came from students that didn't grow up in hip hop culture, but through the context of the class, they learned so much, not just about the music, but the people that are represented in the culture. And it's been a wonderful way of bringing people together. A quick story, there was a conversation that we were having in one of the classes and it related to the criminal justice aspect. Mm -hmm. We got into a conversation about over-policing of minority communities, right? Because that's a, you know, that really hip hop community brought that to the forefront of the American conscious Mm -hmm. and really started sort of a wave to kind of address some of those injustices. And so in one of the conversations, one of the parents said, you know, I have an African-American son and my African-American son wanted to go outside one day with his friends and play with the water gun. And the mom says, no, you are not allowed to go outside with the water gun. And then a non-minority student, she said, why wouldn't you let your little boy play with the water gun outside? She said, because, you know, my son as an African-American male, it's possible that somebody could misperceive that water gun as a real gun. And I feared that my son would get killed by playing with the water gun. And. It was a watershed moment because the student that asked that question, like she broke down into tears because she just said, I never even thought about that. Right. right? And it was a wonderful space and place for students to come together and have an understanding. And that's that's the type of thing that happens in the class. And I'm really proud of that because, you know, my role as a as a dean and as a professor as a person is about bringing people together and helping them come to a higher sense of understanding. Yeah, and you mentioned our emphasis here at Widener on belonging, and it fits right into that ethos, right, of hip-hop is a force in music and in our culture that is embraced by many people from different backgrounds and has the ability to engage people in these conversations and see things from different perspectives. Absolutely. And I get a chance to sort of the same way that the music does that in the context of my classroom, I get a chance to use hip hop to bring the law together. Right. Yeah. Fascinating. So I read a little bit about some of the work that you've done with Andre Douglas Pond Cummings. Mm. 
he's the Charles C. Baum Distinguished Professor of Law at University of Arkansas at Little Rock mm -hmm. and the William H. Bowen School of Law. And you guys have worked together on a project called A Furious Kinship. And there's a remix version of yes. that as well, too. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit. It's a fascinating project. I'd love to hear you describe it a oh, little bit. Oh, yeah. I'm actually really excited to talk about that. So let me just say a little bit about, you know, Professor Cummings or Dean Cummings. He was very inspirational in my career, and I wouldn't be sitting here but for the love and support that he gave me. And when I was a young lawyer, early professor, he really took me under his wing and shepherded me through the process of being a good law professor. We teach classes together, so I get a chance to kind of see how a master teacher teaches. Mm -hmm. And I mean, he's won numerous Teacher of the Year awards, and he's just been an inspiration to me. And if you got a chance to look at his resume, he is <laughs> relentless in his yeah. scholarship. When I teach the Hip Hop Law and Social Justice course, there's one section that I spend some time discussing about this idea of critical race theory, right? And so critical race theory has gained a lot of attention mm -hmm. now. You know, in the past, you know, it wasn't an area that had a lot of mainstream focus. In fact, it was this idea that if you wrote in that area, that it was like a dead end for your career because it was too focused on minority related issues. But that has since changed and people yeah. are understanding the power and impact of critical race theory. So when Professor Cummings wrote this article about the furious kinship, he was really trying to get students to understand the value of critical race theory. And so this gives us an opportunity to talk about that a little bit as well, because if you think about race relations in the United States, at one point, racism was overt, right? You think about Bull Connor sicking dogs on people, right, spraying right. people down with water hoses. And so you had this civil rights movement and these civil rights leaders that were championing against that type of behavior and ushering in civil rights. And that was really important and impactful. But there was also something that was happening. Racism became synonymous with brutality. So it was easy to identify racism because you could say, turn on the TV, look at those people. People right. getting sprayed with the water hose. Look at those people getting attacked by dogs. That was racism. If you looked at a situation or an institution where, let's say, you have an institution that's operating in an urban area and you look at the management composition of the organization and there are no minorities, that wasn't racism. That was just the way that it was because racism was synonymous with Bull Connor racism. And so critical race theory sort of stepped in to get us to ask questions about, wait a minute, that institution that's operating in the urban area with this management structure, we need to be asking questions about why there is a lack of underrepresented populations among that leadership. Let's ask why, right? And recognizing that racism was more overt and that we had to create different strategies to ferret it out. And so you had these wonderful critical race theory scholars that began with Derek Bell and Kimberly Crenshaw, and they were doing this really important work to get people to ask this why question. Mm -hmm. And so when Professor Cummings wrote this article, A Furious Kinship, what he did was he connected it to the hip hop artists that were emblematic of the critical race theorists that were out in the world coming up with these innovative strategies. Right. So he compared, let's say, he compared Derek Bell to uh, Public enemy. He compared Chuck D to Devin Carbato. So he made these really, that's why he called it this furious kinship uh, yep, connecting. Yep. And it was very helpful for students because they knew Ice Cube, they knew Tupac, they knew public enemy. And because they knew that he connected it back to critical race theory 
the early innovators and they can say, aha, that makes sense to me. Right. And so our work on the remix article is when I told him, I'm like, Dre, people don't know Ice Cube anymore. They don't know Public Enemy. <laughs> so let's remix this based upon more modern artists that allow the current generation to make that same connection and to value and understand the importance of critical race theory. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I heard you talk about the remix, just the concept of the remix, how that's kind of a key aspect of mm -hmm. the genre and of hip hop. What's the remix of your course? What's the remix of oh. Todd Clark? You know, that's actually a really, really good question. Let's think about the remix of the course, because uh, I haven't had a chance to teach it recently um, in the past couple of years, just moving into administration. My hope is that this year I'll be able to offer it for my students. But the remix of the course I definitely think it brings in more of the things that are happening around the world today with respect to this idea of critical race theory right. and the importance right. to have those discussions. I think the remix of the course, and this is something that excites me, is when you think about hip hop, thinking about hip hop in its evolution, right? If you think about what hip hop was at its infancy, right? It was about fun and just bringing people together, right? right. And then we could kind of see that hip hop became commercialized and people recognize that it could be exploited for revenue purposes. Yep. But now what we're seeing is hip hop is making and creating black billionaires. If you think about Jay-Z, if you think about Dr. Dre, if you think about Sean Combs, like these are individuals that utilize the genre to create wealth. And so the next component of my course would really focus on that wealth creation aspect and what has it meant for the community that defines the music, right? So now you have people like Jay-Z that now have the power to impact what some corporate boardrooms are looking, how they look. They have the power to impact how the NFL looks and how the commercials and the shows that we see at halftime of the NFL Super Bowl game, which is probably one of the most watched events yep. in America, right? maybe even the world. So yep. Yep. I think that the next sort of remix of the course would bring in those aspects and get students to understand that. And then what are the legal implications of it, right? This dovetails into the attack on diversity, equity, and inclusion, right? So now you have these artists that have the ability to force those things and to promote those things and bring them to the attention. But now it's coming to a head with the SFFA case, right? In terms terms of what does this mean, even though that case was related to higher education, what does that mean for the corporate context? And then how does that align with the people that now are in hip hop that now have financial capacity and their ability to kind of get companies to think more about DEI? Now things are going to come to a head. What does that mean from a legal perspective? Right. Yeah, fascinating. You talked a little bit about the history of critical race theory and some of the perceptions of racism connected to violence. And it makes me think a little bit about the evolution of hip hop and some of the criticism it's received mm. over the years, right? Like, I think there's a narrative that there's a lot of over-sexualized content or content that glorifies violence. Do you think that's fair? And do you think that's changing over the years? Is there a movement to kind of, certainly in your work, it sounds like, you know, the way you're using hip hop to educate helps to take that to the next level where you're really promoting some of the, the value of that content and not having it remain in this space where people dismiss it because uh, that's that's violent content. It's over-sexualized. You know, that those are that's a really good question, Greg. I, I will say this. I do have to be very careful in sort of thinking about that because I think in some ways if I answer and say that hip-hop is matured, that's a bit unfair to the genre because 
every genre well other than gospel right like many of genres that we listen to of music they all have those same components of sexualization misogynistic comments right, they, they, right. We, we see that in rock and roll we yep. see that in, yep. in other genres so i think that sometimes hip-hop can be unfairly penalized in the way that other genres have not been penalized yes. or caused yes. attack so i will i will say that the other thing on, on the flip side though the other thing that i will say about this is hip-hop Although it's just recently reached its 50th year anniversary, it is still one of the younger genres. And I think that what we're seeing in hip-hop music, I do see an evolution. I do see a growing up, right? Now you have people that are in hip-hop that before hip-hop was just teenagers just you know, providing insight and advice to other teenagers and young people. Now you have people that are older in the game, right? You have a Jay-Z, you have a Andre 3000, you have a Dr. Dre, right? You have a Scarface. You have these people that are now in the genre who have grown up and they look back and they're reflecting like, you know what? I probably wouldn't have done that. Yep, you know, yep. and now the person that I am today, I would have advised myself not to do that. And that's the great thing because now we have people, governors in the genre that can look back and pull young people aside and say, you know what, there's another pathway. And I am excited about that. There was a video that I watched and I showed it in my hip hop law and social justice course. And it's from Dame Dash, who was sort of one of the innovators in terms of working with Jay-Z and, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know, they you know, had a team in Rockefeller Records. And so there was this video where he talks about this big pimping video. And it's, you know, probably people know the song. You probably know yep, the song, Greg. Absolutely. And there's one point of that video that Dame Dash talks about. There's a scene where he has this bottle of alcohol and he pours it over a woman that was dancing in the video. And looking back at this video that he did, and he said, you know, I have a daughter now. I would never do that. And he's like, I look back at that, and I wish that I could have told myself, hey, Dame, don't do that. That's not the right thing mm -hmm, to do. Mm -hmm. But there's an evolution, and there's a growing up. And that's why I'm really so excited for the genre, because it's recognizing its financial capacity. It's recognizing that it has a responsibility. You have now people in the genre that have grown up. Like if you think about, listen to Jay-Z talk now versus the Jay-Z, you know, when he first came into the industry. Right. M many right. of these are, think about even a 50 cent, right? Like, you know, th the level of sophistication that he has now, he had a, a grind and a hustle throughout his life, but the person that he is today in terms of the way that he views the world is a bit different from what it was at his infancy and when he began. So it's exciting to see that. And I think it's in, in, in sort of responding to your question. Mm -hmm. I think it's important to acknowledge that. I will share something with you. And if I have a chance to sort of write this idea, I will. But think about Tupac, right? Mm -hmm. And I mean, and he, think about his music. It was, you know, Brenda had a baby, right? But then it's I Get Around. And he had this, you could see this internal conflict in him. Tupac died at 25, yeah. right? So think about if Tupac had lived to 50 years old, think about the evolution that he would have had an ability to go through in his thought process. And I like to kind of juxtapose that with, think about Malcolm X, right? Malcolm X died, if I remember correctly, at 39, right? Mm -hmm. So the Malcolm X at 25, completely different than the Malcolm X at 39, right. Right? right? The Malcolm X at 39 had a chance to participate in the pilgrimage and got a chance to pray with people in Mecca, in his Mecca, with people that were fair-skinned, that were dark-skinned, and it changed them, right? It changed this sort of perspective about race relations, right? But that was because he had a chance to grow up. Right. And I right. think that we're seeing 
seeing that same type of evolution in hip hop. Are there some things about it that are, you know, that people can perceive as negative? Yes, but I think it's part of the evolution. Yeah, it's fascinating to think about that too, because popular music is often identified with younger audiences, Mm -hmm. right? And like you said, as a young genre, you have these artists that are now aging same thing is happening in pop and rock and roll you have these yeah some of the biggest artists are the the legend or uh you know the artists who have been around for 50 years that are still commanding attention and having the ear of society so. and think about the lessons that they can they can give back to sure. the to the new people yeah. right the new people in the genre and, and kind of guiding and shepherding them through the process not just in what to rap about and their responsibilities but even from the business perspective like hey you want to be aware, aware of this think about this don't get into that type of contract they can pass back that knowledge. Yep. So I, I want to shift gears a little bit and just talk to you about your role as a new dean at the Delaware Law School and goals and aspirations you have coming into that new role and what's energizing you right now? Where, where do you see your impact going as you get your feet wet at Delaware Law School? I'm, I'm going to tell you my number one priority right now is bar passage. I mean, mm-hmm. I was brought in to, to have an impact on bar passage. That is important to our Delaware Law School community. I think it's important to our alum. It's important to Chester and our central administration. It's important to the state of Delaware, to Pennsylvania, to New Jersey, who is really looking to Delaware Law School because of our vast array of diversity to help graduate some attorneys who can pass the bar, who can go into the bar and help diversify the bar. Mm -hmm. So that's Mm -hmm. a critical focus of mine and where I've placed a lot of energy. And I tell people this all the time, bar passing success is not about a magic course. It's not about a, a, a magic program. It's really about relationships and it's about creating a culture that is calibrated to success at the highest level. And so my task right now is getting students to understand that from day one until the day that they pass the bar the first time, It is thinking about bar passage and how do I get better each and every day. My role is to create, reinforce, and grow that culture. Working with students to get them to understand that. One of the things that I tell students and that we kind of say in our building and people are are learning to this language, which is uh, while everybody else is sleeping, we are working. And while they're working, we're working harder. And I believe that. Um, And so we are doing things at the law school that are calibrated to getting the students to buy into those ideologies, to understand their responsibility. And the other point of that is that it's not, sometimes you go some places and they say, I will pass the bar. I'm not focused on the I, I'm focused on the we. Because on the we, what happens if you think about the I, when Greg is about to prepare for the bar exam, Mm -hmm. Greg picks up his materials and Greg goes to the library to study. But if there's a focus on we in that culture, before Greg goes to the library to study, Greg is gonna call Todd. And Todd is gonna call Stacy. And Stacy's gonna call Andy. And Andy's gonna call Terry. And what ends up happening is, it becomes a collective effort where we're keeping each other accountable. We're working for it together as a team. And you can accomplish great things with a wonderful team. And Greg, in fact, that's what we were talking about on our way over here. The right. team that right. we have in our executive team, just the teams that we have at our individual departments is something that really excites us and inspires us. And I want to create that for our student body around this idea of bar yeah, passage. That's fantastic. I was going to ask you a question about how you build culture. And I think you just gave us a really great window into your thinking around that you know I, I will tell you if you want to know one of the things that is a challenge for me is there's a difference between building it and changing it right and right. so i've been in situations where 
I've built it. And so when I was at North Carolina Central and St. Thomas, I was a professor there. The students knew my level of engagement. They knew my passion. They knew how committed I was as a professor. They knew that I was always available to them. If they wanted to have a meeting at 10 o'clock at night, where well, we're going to do a great Zoom session and I'll stay with you till midnight. And I'll wake up that next morning and I'm still going to work with you and send an email out at three o'clock in the morning to answer your question because I was all in because I wanted to see them succeed. Right. So because of that, I developed some really strong connections with the student body as a whole. And there was a wonderful amount of amazing, magical confidence and trust in that relationship. And so coming to a new school, no one knows me. Like I'm just the new dean right. and they don't right. know about my commitment and my passion. So in some ways I'm changing a culture so that they can understand my expectations. And I think that they'll learn to trust me when they know how much I'm willing to dedicate to them. Yeah. Like, I don't know that they really understand that. If I hear a concern, it keeps me up in the middle of the night. Like I have this anxiety and I can't, I'm like, I gotta figure out a solution to this. Like I wanna work through that. And once they get to know me and they get to know my passion, I think that they will say, you know what? I trust Dean Clark and I'm gonna move in the direction that he wants me to move in because I have faith that he's gonna get me and us where we need to be. Right. You've only been here now for three months or so, right? Yes. So this will be a fresh thought in your mind when I ask you this question. But one of the things I always like to ask on the Far and Wider podcast is an experience that you've had at Widener, if you can think of one, what has really been the most impactful so far? Something that's really set the tone for your Widener experience? Oh, I'll tell you this. It was before I got here, I had a conversation with Stacy. Our president of the university. Yeah. During my interview, we were sitting down at the table having dinner. It was me, um, President Robertson, and Provost Workman. And we were having this conversation around social justice and, you know, what's important to us. And President Robertson told me a story because I was sharing with her my why. What is my why? What gets me excited? Mm-hmm. And then she's like, oh, Todd, I like that story. She was like, you know, let me tell you a story about my past experiences and she said social justice issues were ingrained in her she had a passion about those issues this is not a new thing right like this is the essence of who she is and she said a good friend of her sent her a box of letters and in the box of letters these were letters that president robertson had written and it was about her passion for social justice her desire to make a change and she talked about how proud she was in reading those letters and thinking about the person that she is and the type of leader she is today and that was something that resonated very deeply with me mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. it made me want to be here at Widener. Yeah. I mean, just when you have a leader that is that passionate, that was a visionary and thinking about those things from an early point, it's the core of who she is. And she's just a wonderful leader. So that was exciting. And then equally exciting is when I walked into Delaware Law School and I sat down with my faculty mm-hmm. and they're like, I've been here for 20 years, 25, 30, 32, 31. <laughs> right. That's exciting. And I got a chance to hear their story about the nature of their commitment. These are people that could have gone to other law schools, right? These are people that had successful practices that could have easily transitioned back in the practice. Mm-hmm. These are administrative assistants that could go other places and probably double and triple their salary, but yet they stayed here and they 
stayed at Delaware Law School because of the passion that they have for the people in the building, for their love for their students, for their passion for walking by when I'm like, hey, Connie, every morning, or I see Patty sitting at the desk, right. and I, you know, I'm walking by my faculty offices, and they'll stop by, and we'll have a wonderful conversation, and I see Alicia sitting in the office, and I, I see Dana out there working relentlessly. I mean, when I see our legal methods and our clinicians, and they're highly engaged with our students and the world around us and you know Jim and Aaron doing this amazing work in the dignity right space like that is exciting and some days I pinch myself every day I walk into school and I have an ability to work with this great group of people now that doesn't mean that we often have challenging issues but if if there weren't challenges then they wouldn't need strong leadership right right? right? and so you know I'm willing to go to war with the people in my building like whatever difficulties are out there in the world I have the right team to get us through it and I'm going to bet on my people and my students every day of the week. That's fantastic. Well, it sounds like you've certainly landed in a great place and we're very excited to have you at the helm at Delaware Law School and wishing you great success there and really looking forward to continuing to work with you. Greg, I really appreciate you inviting me and having this opportunity to chat. Yeah, it was a pleasure and look forward to chatting with you again real soon. Thank you so much, Greg. Far and Widener is produced by Widener University's Advancement Staff. To learn more about Widener University, visit widener.edu. If you like the show, please help us and show your support. Subscribe and leave a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. We'd love to know what you think of this episode and our program. Alumni, we want to hear from you. If your Widener education started you on a path to something you never imagined, or you want to share your experience and expertise, you could be a future guest on the show. Just send an email to widenerpodcast at widener.edu. Thanks for listening.